So Godtown is an urban mission training center that has begun to send people all over the world. I'm convinced that good news actually is the answer to every issue that we're dealing with in our culture at this time. My name is Alyssa Adams. I am the high school ministry coordinator here at Chapel Street. So last summer going to the Twin Cities, we had a lot of students encounter God in ways I don't think they ever had before. I'm CJ Valenti, 10th grade, go to Batavia. Last year I went to, I chose to go on the mission trip because I feel like it was a great opportunity to, to grow my relationship with God and with some of my closest friends. And even to this day, I feel like the people I met on that mission trip and the people that are in my group are still some of the closest friends that I got. An example of like when I really noticed God working was we were at God's Town, we were doing this thing where we went out and we wrote down a description of a person. When we walked by somebody and if we thought that, that description fit them, then we would just like ask them, talk to them, and just ask to pray for them. And my leader, Tira, wrote down just like, I'm gonna meet a, a construction worker by a van wearing an orange vest. And within the first 30 seconds, we walked by a guy going back to his van, construction worker wearing an, an orange vest, and that just, just like showed me that God's there. So my name is Sarah Hahn, and I am a sophomore at Geneva High School and went on the Twin Cities trip last summer. One of the coolest things was on the ship, like the worship was phenomenal. You just got to worship with all your friends and just, I think that was another huge way that I saw God's presence on this trip is just everyone was in the same place at the same time um, for a whole week, just spending time like worshiping God. I want to go back to the Twin Cities just because it honestly is the week that where my faith with God started. Like that's kind of where my like story starts. Cause I obviously knew God, like I went to church when I was young, I knew him my whole life, but I never knew what an actual like relationship with, with him was. So going on this trip allowed me to kind of like see that and kind of like practice like kind of living like Jesus and just kind of learning like how to serve others. The thing that I, uh, watch over and over again is that they come in and they actually bring the presence of Jesus into an area that may not have a lot of people walking up and down the street that believe in Jesus. So a lot of the kids that uh, live in our area are completely unchurched. They've never had any experience um, with going to church at all. And when they have other peers that come in and share a, a short time of life with them, playing with them, uh, working with them, helping out their families or stuff like that, it has a big impact on them and they get to see that there's something different than what their own experience is. It's a little shocking at first for some of our students who might expect like, oh, I've you know been to Chicago before or any other place that has people that look different than us. But I think going down into Midtown specifically, or even um, the neighborhoods in Godtown, there is just such a different demographic where I think it gives our students a chance to really see the face of God in strangers. Definitely serving a community that like you're not used to. We obviously live in like Geneva, the Tri-Cities area. We're not used to like going out into like more diverse communities. So it's definitely like an eye-opening thing to just see where the different like places people are at in their lives and it was kind of neat because you just kind of entered that and you kind of just went, went in and with like a loving serving heart and just went in to meet them where they're at. Well, the main reason I want to go back is I grew really close to my friends last year and I feel that I'll, I'll meet new people on the mission trips and those that I am friends with I can grow even closer with because it is extremely important to have friends around you that love the Lord and just push you to strive closer to the Lord every single day. 
my faith just started just through the whole trip. Just it like kept building each day. Just seeing like his presence every day. You start your day with a devotional. Like I carried it on into my daily life when I went home. And now every day I will read my Bible before dead. I'll wake up. I'll pray right away. I'll talk to my friends about God and just the things I've learned on that trip I took with me and carried home. Well, I am immensely grateful to be part of a church that loves students uh, and has so many opportunities for students to engage with Christ and with his mission in the world. Uh, and if you have students in your family, you know this has been a, a hard year for some of the students in our area. Uh, <clears throat> there's been a lot of heartbreak uh, and painful things. And so uh, I would love for you to join with me in praying and for us to praise the church. That this summer, our students really would be impacted by walking alongside Jesus uh, serving others and engaging with them because uh, I know Jesus wants to do a lot of very special things in them. Uh, but uh, I, it's the first time that I'm with you in a long time this morning. I think it's been probably close to a year. Uh, so I'm very excited to be able to worship with you uh, and enjoy some time with you. Uh, it's been uh, a year of change for me. Uh, I've started pastoring at our North Aurora campus last September. Uh, and things are going really well there. I know that some of you have come by to visit, so it's always great to see your faces there. would love for you to come by any time, though I'm sure Kenton and Brian would be sad to, to not see you here. Uh, but um, one thing that I miss uh, this summer is getting to do our adventure trip with our middle school students. That was my last position here at Chapel Street, getting to work with our sixth through eighth graders. Uh, and so every summer, we would start the summer off by going up to an adventure camp in uh, Wisconsin, uh, a whole host of great activities. So I'm sad that I don't get to do that this year. They just left this weekend and I was kind of hanging around in the background, like kind of like a sad, depressed old middle school pastor, hoping that I might get a little taste of everything they're gonna get to go do. But one of my favorite things to do on the trip was rock climbing uh, and their high ropes course. We've got some pictures here of that. So it, this was a really wonderful thing to do. Uh, but inevitably, as you can imagine, a lot of the students would be very intimidated to do this if they had never done it before. Because um, you're getting up to some considerable heights, uh, and all you've got on you is this harness and these ropes. Uh, and so if you've never done anything like that before, it can be really intimidating to trust yourself to this, this harness. Uh, and so we would always have to kind of talk through with the students, hey, you're going to be perfectly safe. Uh, this is designed to take you. And actually those harnesses and the ropes are designed to be able to take uh, weight in excess of like a full car. Uh, so that you can hang probably close to uh, 1,500 pounds on them, uh, and they can handle that, the design for it. But inevitably, no matter how much you would explain these details to the students, that this harness can hold you, it can take you, you don't know what's, what's got hold of you, they would still have a level of fear in their hearts over it. Now, as I've been praying about Romans 8 and thinking about this last little section that we're going to cover together, it reminds me that sometimes our faith functions a little bit like those middle schoolers on that trip, that we don't know what has a hold of us. We don't know how mighty, how great, how trustworthy the harness of God's grace, the love of his son, the presence of his spirit is in our life. And so towards the end of this chapter that we've called the greatest chapter, Paul is going to help us try and get a handle on just how unfathomable and mighty God's love is for us. And I think for us, we need to really consider this because if I was to ask you this morning on a scale of one to 10, how confident would you be that God loves you? I think 
if we're honest, a lot of us would probably be somewhere in the four to seven range. I know that I would have to confess that often in my life, even though I preach, even though I read the scriptures every day, there's parts of my heart that doubt that God would really love me, that God would really be dedicated to me the way that he talks about in this chapter. And so we want to listen to these final words of Romans 8 because in them, God gives us an anchor. Paul is going to give us an anchor to hold on to when we have those doubts. He is going to silence once and for all those questions in our heart, how could God love someone like me? So let's go ahead, let's read this. This is Romans 8, 31 through 39. Here's what it says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but give him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to start just by praying for us together this morning to ask the Spirit of God to make these words come alive in our hearts as we go through them. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, your perfect word that you have given us to tell us the truth. Father, so often our hearts are deceitful. Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things, and God, sometimes we believe anything but you. So this morning I ask that your word would remind us of the truth that even as we search through these words, God, that your spirit would make alive to us the truth that nothing can separate us, that we are loved, and that you are with us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So here's how I wanna carry us through this this morning. There's four questions that Paul asks, kind of rhetorical questions in this final passage, and they are intended to get us to think about what it is that we've been given in Christ. He asks us, who can be against us? He asks us, who shall bring any charge? He asks us, who is to condemn? And finally, the most important question, he asks us, who shall separate us? So let's go ahead and take a look at those one at a time. And I want to start with this one. Who can be against us? Who can be against us? Well, it's a very busy time in my home right now. We have four children, uh, ranging from seven all the way down to one. Uh, it's wonderful, but truly, sometimes I'm unconscious before my head hits the pillow on a night. Uh, and one of the things that my kids love most right now uh, is Pokemon. Now, if you have never had anything to do with Pokemon, God bless you, you're probably a healthy individual. But Pokemon is this kind of fad for kids. It was actually very popular even when I was a kid. It seems to have kind of lasted through the ages of these little monsters on little cards. It's a game. Uh, you collect them and kind of go with your friends and trade monsters, everything like that. Um, Think of it as kind of the nerdy, geeky version of baseball cards, something like that. And so my kids have really gotten into this, 
Uh, and so I was excited because I had a collection back in England from when I was a kid. So I thought, I- I'll get them and I'll bring them over. So I did that a few years ago before the kids got into them. Uh, and unfortunately, it seemed at first that the kids were not going to get into them. And so I thought, maybe I'll just get rid of these because I'm sure you can imagine my wife was not excited about having a collection of Pokemon cards in the house. So uh, I went and I found someone that I could sell them to uh, and I sold them for something, I think somewhere like 60 or $70. It was nice. It was helpful for us at the time. Uh, but then, of course, the kids got into them. So when the kids got back into them, I, uh, I was really sad that I'd let go of these cards. So I, I looked up the guy that I'd sold them to and I wondered whether I could buy them back from him. Well, this is where things got really depressing because I talked with my friend and discovered that some of the cards that I had given him were worth hundreds of dollars. There was one card in particular that was worth by itself $400 and I had given it to him for 50. You can imagine that I was more than a little upset with myself, right? That I, because I spent that $50 in about 10 seconds flat. I could have had a college fund started from one of my kids from this collection of cards. Uh, well, the, the truth is that often in our spiritual lives, we can act a little bit like me. We don't know the value of what we really have. Sometimes we can treat as trivial or mundane some of the treasures and the riches and the grace of God's love for us. So what Paul wants us to do is he wants us to grasp what it is we've really got a hold of, the value of what's been given to us. He says to us, opening up this last section, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? When he says, what then shall we say to these things, he's talking about all of the blessings that have already been discussed in Romans 8, adoption, forgiveness, no condemnation, the presence of the Spirit praying in our lives. What shall, what shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The thing that we need to take away from this is that the Son of God is proof of God's committed and constant devotion to us. The Son of God is proof of God's devotion to us. When Paul says that we should consider everything God has provided for us, what could we possibly fear? What is left to face that we don't have coverage for in Jesus? Who can be against us? If God has given us Jesus, he's given us everything. He wants the church in Rome to understand what they have. Jesus Christ is not just some get-out-of-hell-free card. He's not some distant future joy. He is a very present help in times of trouble. He is the full provision of God. This is what Paul tells us in some of his other letters. He says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. In the start of Ephesians, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And finally, in his letter to the Philippians, he writes, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul was a man convinced that the person of Jesus provided everything that he would ever need for the rest of his life. No matter what trial, no matter what challenge, no matter what burden, in Christ, Paul had all he needed. Are you this morning as equally convinced? Are you as persuaded as Paul that Christ is all that you need?
Do you believe that Jesus is the real and effective provision of God for your suffering? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the provision of God for your marriage, for your children? Do you believe that He is the provision of God for your future, even for your past? Do you believe that God has provided in Jesus for your ongoing struggles with addictions and sins and brokenness? Do you believe that Jesus is God's perfect provision for the guilt and the shame that you carry? Or that broken relationship that keeps troubling you and weighing on you? The Word of God calls us to recognize and to believe that in Jesus we have everything. Now, Paul's statement doesn't exclude the possibility of facing hard things. In fact, quite the opposite. He kind of expects these to come. But what this statement means is that when storms come, when things come that wound us and hurt us and burden us, there is one for you and in you who is able to hold you together. Someone who can get you through it. More than that, who can grow you through the trials of your life. I think that sometimes we chase our security in so many different things in this world, whether it be money, career, relationships. And the truth is, all of those are futile if we are not finding our security in Christ. Because He is the only one on whom we can stand throughout every trial, every challenge, every struggle. He is the rock on which everything is built. God wants us to be fearless, not because the economy is trending in the right direction, not because the right politicians are in the right offices, not because everything is going great in our families, not because there is nothing in our life that frightens us, but because we have His Son. So this morning, let's be present to the reality of Romans 8. Let's bring all of what troubles us, all of what burdens us, all of what is weighing our souls down to the foot of the cross, because there we'll find the Son, in whom are all the spiritual blessings that you could ever need from God, in whom all the glory and the riches and the majesty of the King of creation are found. If God is for us, who could be against us? The next two questions that Paul asks are really kind of in the same category. He says, who can bring any charge against God's elect or who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? I made a, a somewhat foolish choice recently. I decided to sign myself up for the Fox Valley Half Marathon uh, this September. It, you, you think about it on the front end and you think, yes, what a healthy, wonderful choice for my life. And then you think about what you're going to have to do, and all of a sudden you regret. Um, now, I have done one half marathon before. It was the Fox Valley a few years ago. And, and so I remember the pain that it caused my body. My legs were useless for probably about a week afterwards, right? Now, I, at the time that I did it, I was about 31, 32, so I, in a reasonable age to be attempting something like this. Uh, but I remember hitting the finish line. Uh, it took me about three hours to make it through uh, 13-ish miles. And uh, as I'm coming up to the finish line, they have an announcer. And the announcers kind of, he, they track you as you go through, and they're kind of calling the names as you're crossing the finish line. And uh, right before I got to the finish line, uh, they called out a gentleman's name and said, congratulations, 86 years old, and you're finishing 
and he's in front of me. So I'm realizing I have this terrible humiliation. Here I am, a 31, 32-year-old guy, and an 86-year-old man, someone almost three times my age, has beaten me in a half marathon. Now, in that moment, it was very possible for me to just want to go hide and, and never think about this ever again. But when I crossed that finish line, you know who else I saw? I saw my wife, Janae, and I saw my boys. They were cheering for me. They were yelling for me. Daddy, well done, well done. And you know what? It didn't matter at that moment what I thought about me. It didn't matter what the crowds thought about me. What mattered is there are people that love me, and they're here. They approve. They're shouting for me. They're cheering for me. They're with me. Their opinion mattered more than everyone else there, and even more than mine. Now, friends, you know whose opinion matters even more than those people? Those people that we love is God's. The King of the heaven who knows everything about you, who has seen every single thought that has ever passed through your heart and says, I love you. His opinion matters more. And that's why Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. You know that right now, even as we speak, as we gather in this room, in the heavens, the Son of God, the glorified risen Son of God, is interceding for you before the throne of heaven. Jesus Christ, calling out your name, cheering you on, praying for you. You know that understanding God's view of you is essential to escaping the burden of guilt and shame in your life. We as a church, we as God's people must understand what he has said about us. We need that. J.D. Greer said this, he said, God has committed all judgment to the Son. That means that one day everyone who has ever lived will stand before Jesus and be judged. And that also means that the one who will judge me has already died in my place. The one who will judge me, who sits on the throne, who will judge the whole world, has already borne my punishment. And that is why Christians travel to that day with hope and joy in our hearts. Who shall bring any charge? If God says that you are not guilty, who is possibly going to accuse you? Who's authority supersedes God's? Who can nullify his judgment? Who could possibly bring anything with which to condemn you? I remember once seeing a brother in Christ go through a very difficult struggle in his life, uh, a lot of sin, a lot of brokenness, uh, and this brother had the, the immense courage to come before myself and a few others, confess his sin, and ask for God's grace and forgiveness. Now, in, in those moments, Christians, we can, we can sometimes be so overwhelmed by what we hear that we, we're not quite sure what to say first. But someone in that circle, a pastor, said this. He said, God has forgiven this man. Who are we to deny him the same? And I remember thinking, and to this day, hold on to that memory as one of the most beautiful pictures of biblical forgiveness I've ever seen. It is why all of us should be willing to offer total and complete grace to everyone, even those who have heard us most pointedly, because God has not withheld forgiveness. 
To withhold forgiveness suggests that our judgment is more important than God's. I'm willing to bet that there are some in here that worry that if you were to bring your struggles into the light, your addictions, your brokenness, your relationships, that perhaps you might be rejected, that things might not be very pleasant for you. There are some of you who feel secretly like you are not truly loved by God, because how could God love someone like you? I have felt those very things. I have thought those very words. And I just want to say this morning, if it's the church in any place in your life that has somehow projected that idea into your heart, please forgive us. I ask for forgiveness on, the, on behalf of whoever has said that to you because the bedrock of our faith, the very core of what we believe as Christians is this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That is what everything is built on. If you are in Christ, you cannot be condemned. You cannot be condemned by me. You cannot be condemned by others. And you cannot be condemned even by your own heart. Or do you think that your own opinion of you is more important than God's opinion of you? Remember the story of the prodigal son where that wicked, very broken son comes back to his father having wished his father to die, having taken his inheritance and wasted it, comes skulking back to the family estate and the father sees him. And the father doesn't condemn him but runs to him and embraces him, honors him, pours his love on him, pours his affection on him. Friends, that's what no condemnation means. It doesn't simply mean that God has wiped out your bill and but then says to you, but you know what? What you did disappointed me so greatly that though I forgive you, I want nothing to do with you. No, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the statement of there is no condemnation means that the Father runs to you with his arms open, ready to embrace you and receive you and give every spiritual blessing in the heavens to you through his Son. How does that change your view of life? How does it change the view of life that, that what Paul tells us is the sun in the seeds for you right now in the heavens? Pastor Jeff was asking this week as we were planning the sermon, he said, how, what difference would it make to you if you knew that right now in the next room, Jesus Christ was praying for you by name? We don't have to imagine. That's real. That's true. Sometimes I'll ask certain people to pray for me because I have this misguided notion that perhaps God listens to them a little bit better than he does to me. I'll, I'll get Sally to pray for me, because she's really godly. So if she prays for me, God will have to do it. Well, let's consider for a moment what it would be like if Jesus Christ was praying for you. Do you think that God is going to refuse his prayers? Do you think that the Father would turn away anything that the Son asks him? Let your heart dwell on that when you are struggling, when you feel alone, when you feel empty. The glorified Jesus speaks your name. 
He prays for you to be transformed, to grow, to stand firm. That God would give you all of the riches of His glorious presence. God is for you. He approves of you because of the work of Jesus. You are who He says you are. And you will be what He prays for you to be. Final question. Who shall separate us? This is what Paul writes. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul ends Romans 8 with the most extensive assurance of God's love that can be found perhaps anywhere in Scripture. And he lists out all the possible dangers that we could face in this life, many of which Paul has personally faced himself. And it's worth noting that by listing these out, what Paul is inferring is these things will come, but they won't be able to touch you. He even quotes this very dark passage from Psalm 44, probably the part of this section that troubles us the most where he says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's kind of odd to find those two lines amidst everything else going on, but these are taken from Psalm 44. And Psalm 44 was a prayer of lament by the people of Israel in a particularly dark time in their nation's history. In, in the kind of biblical history, they cried out to God and they said, where are you? We can't find you. We can't see you. Are you here with us? And so what Paul is doing is he's taking this psalm of lament as if to kind of prime us and help us understand. When we ask the question, where are you? Are you with us? God can say yes. Essentially saying that when you feel in your heart, are these dangers, are these troubles, are they separating me from God? Paul can say, no, they are not. For we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love how John Piper explains this. He says that a conqueror defeats his enemy, but one who is more than a conqueror subjugates his enemy. A conqueror nullifies the purpose of his enemy, but one who is more than a conqueror makes his enemy serve his own purpose. So here's the lesson for us is that not only is God present and with us in the midst of our trials and struggles and sufferings, but because through him we are more than conquerors, he is bending the tragedies and the brokenness of life around us to accomplish his purposes in our life. That is the greatness of the glory of God. As we heard last week, all things work together for good for those who love Jesus, who are called according to his purposes. These dangers might hurt us, but they can't kill us. They might knock us off our feet, but they cannot overcome us. Persecution becomes an opportunity for forgiveness. Famine becomes an opportunity for us to trust that God will provide. 
loss becomes an opportunity for us to be thankful and to hope that God will redeem and restore. Everything that you walk through in your life in the hands of God becomes something that can be used for your good. But I think that this is the hardest part of Romans 8 for us to grasp. Many of us feel like those dangers are separating us from his love. When life beats us down, when we have those that we love that are being taken from us, when we read horrible, awful things in the news like we have these last couple of weeks about shootings in schools and in churches, our hearts ask the question, where are you? Where are you, Lord? But Ray Portland reminds us, our certainty does not lie in our apprehension of God's grace, but in his grace itself. What he means is that your grasping Romans 8 is not what makes it true. Your feeling it is not what makes it true. It is true because God has said it is true. Your experience of God's grace will follow your decision to trust it. And I know that that is very counterintuitive for us. We think that we need to experience it before we can trust. But what God calls us to do is to trust him, to believe him, and that the experience of it will follow as his spirit works in our hearts. God knows how hard it is to trust amidst struggle. And so here he is giving Paul this extravagant explanation of his love so that when those storms come, we can come back to this. And we can read it and reread it and reread it and reread it until our hearts understand he will not leave. God wants to be emphatic with us. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I am going to get you through this. I think that's the same reason that Jesus told his disciples when he was talking about those who trust him. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them from my hand. Nothing can separate you from God's love for you. Not past, not future, not demons, not rulers, nothing and no one. Paul was persuaded of this and we should be too. Because you know what this will do in our hearts when we trust it, when we believe it, when we place the full weight of our lives on the words of Romans 8? I think it'll do two things. It will drive us into worship. It'll lead us into worship because we'll begin to grasp the glory of God's love. It'll lift the burden off us to be the perfecters of our own faith. Because which of these questions come with an if or a but? Where does Paul say, who will bring any charge against God's elect if they follow all the rules and get it all right? Where does Paul say, nothing will separate you from God's love except there is nothing on you, for you. This is all accomplished by the work of Jesus. Our job is to trust and to surrender in worship to the God who has finished the work. Doesn't that want to make you worship even right now in these seats? To know that God on our behalf has done everything that is required. He has provided everything that is required. What unbelievable, scandalous grace. For I know what I've said about God. I know what I have done to God. I know that what I have done in spite of God. 
Yet here he is, calling my name, interceding for me before the throne of heaven, praying for me, dedicating himself to me, pouring out every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. I think the second thing it will do is drive us to mission. Because how desperate is our world for this message? How much groaning goes on on a weekly, daily, hourly basis all around the globe because we need to hear this. And we search for it and we search for it and we search for it in all the wrong places and here it is waiting for us to pick it up. Church, we should be on mission because we have the answer to everything that ails this world. We have the one who can redeem and rebuild and bring joy out of tragedy and wipe away tears from every eye. Christ, the hope of glory. We shouldn't be chasing new government policies and the, and the right politicians. We shouldn't be changing hopes in an economy and different changes like that. We shouldn't be chasing whatever the new cultural trend is and whatever the well tells us, well, this is where you're finally gonna find your hope and identity and your strength. No, we know where we're gonna find it. We don't need to chase it anywhere else. It's in the hands of Jesus Christ, who is risen and who is at the throne of heaven. He offers provision for all that you would face. He offers freedom from condemnation. He offers love that is unbreakable. Perhaps we could end by saying this. Jesus Christ is the harness in which you can lean your whole weight. May you know his love for you today. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you and we rejoice in the words that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We praise you that in your son you have poured out everything that you have to give. We thank you that because of you we can sing the words, there is therefore now no condemnation. That we can rest in the truth that you are praying for us, that you are working for us. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we will sing with the rest of the saints, nothing has separated us. Father, we pray this in your son's name, amen. I can think of no better way for us to respond to the end of Romans 8 than by coming to the Lord's table together. Those words that our passage today began with, if he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When we come to this table, that's what we remember, that in the body and blood of Jesus, God has graciously given us all things. So as the ushers dispense these, we want us to rest and then together we'll take communion and celebrate God's love for us. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his friends whom he loved. Had a meal with them that he'd had probably a dozen times before. But this night was different. He took the bread, he broke it and he passed it around and said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat it in remembrance of me. Let's eat this in remembrance this morning. In the same way afterwards, he took a cup filled with meaning and symbolism for the Jews and he said something different. He said, this cup is my blood poured out for you as part of a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins.
Let's drink this in remembrance of him. Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, for your son, for his shed blood, for his broken body. Such grace is too wonderful for us to consider. And Father, we shall spend eternity thanking you for what you have done in him. May our remembrance this morning fill us and may you renew us by your spirit to be filled with hope and joy in the great love that you have given us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.